This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you in part by Slomag. Slomag is a magnesium chloride plus calcium supplement for proper muscle function. It's one of the best ways to get the magnesium your muscles need. Getting out of a swimming pool without using the ladder, opening your garage door the old-fashioned way, hopping a fence, those are all feats of middle age. Brought to you by Slomag. Visit slomag.com slash manliness to learn more. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, when we think of creative people, we often think of a genius who works alone, comes up with an earth-shattering new idea, an instantaneous eureka moment, and then sees that obviously valuable idea naturally become a well-known sensation. My guest today argues that this picture is altogether wrong and lays out a different image of what it really means to not only be creative, but become a successful creative and achieve one's aims. His name is Alan Gannett, and he's the author of the book, The Creative Curve. We begin our conversation discussing what exactly creativity is and the myth of the creative genius that exist in the West. Alan shares why the best creative ideas actually aren't completely novel and instead riff off on what already exists. Then we discuss why the most creative people in history are the biggest consumers of other content ideas, why creatives need to promote their work, why timing is crucial in a creative idea taking off, and the four types of people a successful creative needs to have in their network. Whether you need to be creative in traditional business or more artistic pursuits, this show has some good insights on how to make your ideas more successful. After the show's over, check out the show notes at aom.is slash creativecurve. And Alan joins me now via clearcast.io. Alan Gannett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. So you got a book out, The Creative Curve, how to develop the right idea at the right time. Now, this idea that you can instantaneously, on demand, bring up good ideas I don't know, man. The, the 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 idea out there is that genius, inspiration, creativity—it just happens thanks to the muses, thanks to inspiration. What what are the big myths that we have about? I mean, you think that's a myth? Why do you think that's a myth about creativity? Yeah, so I think you know it's definitely not that you can bring it up within a minute, right? It's not on demand, on demand. But we have this view of creativity in our culture and Western culture that's wrong. The view of creativity in our culture is that some people have this, you know, prodigal talent and, you know, they are zapped by the forces above with these moments of inspiration that the rest of us, us normies, you know, could only sort of, you know, quake in their presence. We're never going to have those moments. We're not going to be JK Rowling or Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and all this thing. And I think that this is a very dangerous belief because for a lot of people, this is very discouraging, right? If you think for some people, it's super easy. And for the rest of us, it's impossible you're never actually going to try. You're never going to give it that best effort. And so I got a little frustrated with this a few years ago. And I just was hearing this so much, this idea of, you know, I'm not creative enough, blah, blah, blah. And I went to dig into the question. And what I found and what resulted in the book was that when you actually look at the research, the science behind creativity, it's actually very clear that creativity is a skill. It's a skill that you can nurture, a skill that you can develop, and a skill that you can get better at. And so the book is basically taking this myth down and then also prescribing things you can do to actually enhance it. And what's interesting too, when you're talking about, you actually find some of our biggest, some of the big creativity stories out there, right? And you dig into them and actually find out, well, no, it wasn't just this single moment. It actually took years for them to oh, yeah. come up with that idea. Is, is there one that stands out to you in particular? 
I mean, one of my favorite ones is, you know, there's this myth that J.K. Rowling, you know, was hit with the idea for Harry Potter on a train. She started writing the book on a napkin. And like, there's just so many things not true with this. So first of all, she didn't have a napkin. She just came up with like the idea for the characters. And then it took her five years to write the first book. Five years. And she shows in an interview she did on TV once, she actually shows the box with all of the different versions of chapter one of book one. There was 15 different versions she wrote. Like this was a highly iterative, long, methodical thing she did. It wasn't this boom, you have an idea and boom, you have a best-selling book. It took five years. And so I think we have this romanticism around these creatives that we want to believe that it's so easy. And I, I almost wonder, I almost worry that it may be just be an excuse that we tell ourselves. You know, maybe it's not that it's discouraging. Maybe it's that, well, if it's easy for them, it's impossible for me. I don't actually have to try. I don't have to put in five years of work. And so I, I wonder how people really internalize it. Yeah. All right. So, okay. Get rid of this idea that creativity just happens because of happenstance or just luck or whatever. There's something we can do about it. It takes work. But this is an interesting point that you, you talk about in the book that I think is important to talk about as well is what makes something creative, creative, right? Like oh, yeah. you can come up with a, an original idea, but it could suck. And like, is that, is that a creative idea? Like <laughs> how do we figure out like, this is actually a creative idea. This is great. How do we d- figure that out? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing because creativity is actually subjective, right? Because it's kind of like that famous Supreme Court case about porn. You like, you know it when you see it. It's like, if I painted a replica of the Mona Lisa, it wouldn't be creative. It would be technically skilled, but it's already been done. And so in creativity, there's actually two different concepts of creativity. And you have to understand the distinction between the two. There's lowercase c creativity. And these are the real, this is where academics call it, lowercase c creativity, which is basically just creating something new, creating something, creating something out of you know, something else. And then there's capital C creativity. And this is what we actually mean when we're talking about creativity. This is creating things that people actually want things that people actually care about. And the definition that academics have come to for things that are capital C creativity is the ability to make things that are both novel and valuable. Novel and valuable. And that's actually really important because I could throw a bunch of paint on a canvas and certainly novel, but it's definitely not valuable and it's definitely not creative. On the other hand, I recently learned how to do conditional color formatting in Excel. I'm very proud of myself. It's definitely valuable. It's certainly not novel and certainly not creative. So really, when we're talking about creativity, what we're really talking about is that ability to create things that are novel and valuable. All right. So it's creativity then is, is a social concept in a way. Yeah, because value, value is completely subjective, right? For something to be valuable, we all have to agree that it's valuable. And so when you want to study creativity, one of the things you really have to dig into is you also have to dig in to what drives human preference, what drives trends, consumer behavior, all this stuff. And one of the things, if you don't mind me geeking out for a second, sure. is that there's actually some really fascinating evolutionary biology around human preference. And it comes down to these two things. So it turns out that there's actually pretty good reason and rationality to why we like certain things. And it comes down to these two seeming contradictory urges. On one side, our brain has this urge to seek out things that are familiar. We like things that are familiar because they represent safety to us, right? When we go to our home, we feel safe. When we go to a stranger's home for the first time, we're sort of looking around, we're a little, you know, we're looking around. If you were a prehistoric cave dweller and you saw two caves, one cave that 
you've slept many nights in and one cave you've never been in before, the cave you've never been in before feels a little bit dangerous. But then we have this other urge. We also have this urge to seek out things that are novel. And the reason why is that we want the potential reward that they represent. So for example, if you were a hunter-gatherer and you see a new berry on the field, you might go, oh, this is a potential source of food. I should eat this. I should try it. And so these two things are a seeming contradiction, the search for familiarity and the search for novelty. But it turns out that this is our brain's really elegant way of balancing risk and reward, right? If we're in a field and we see a berry that kind of looks like a weird strawberry, we eat it. We say, oh, this is interesting. But if it's like a berry we've never seen ever before, it's so weird, so novel, we'd probably say, oh, that's too new. That's dangerous. Maybe it's poisonous. So it turns out that we're wired to like things that are familiar with a twist of novelty. You know, the first Star Wars was a Western in space. Right now, there's these sushi burritos that are taking over the coasts of America. It's the new food trend. It's sushi, but it's in a burrito form. We like these things that are familiar but novel. We don't actually like things that are radically new or radically novel. That's actually one of the biggest misconceptions when it comes to creativity. Turns out the ideas that people like are the ideas that are in that sweet spot of familiarity and novelty. And that's what the creative curve is, is that finding that sweet spot where you're getting just the right amount of novelty, just the right, right amount of familiarity. Yeah. So scientists have found this really, really cool phenomenon and the, the scientific name for it is the inverted U-shaped relationship between familiarity and preference. I rebranded it the creative curve. I think it sounds much better. And basically what it is, is this is upside down U-shape where it turns out when we first see something or first experience something, like the first time you heard that new Drake song, you're like, ah, I don't really like it that much. Then the more we hear it, because we like things that are familiar, we start to like it more and more and more. But then it reaches a point where our drive for novelty seeking starts winning out, so it reaches this point of cliche. And the more we experience it, we like it less and less. We get sick of that Drake song. We don't want to hear it anymore. And this forms an upside down you. And so your goal as someone who wants to be creative is to create things on that left side that are going to quickly take off from low preference to high preference with some additional exposure. That's the job of a creative. It's to create ideas that are at this sweet spot, this sweet spot where people will actually be interested and they'll actually define it as valuable. Right. I think, you know, besides, I think some of the, the great way where you can see this in action is music, right? Oh, yeah. Like, for example, Bruno Mars. Sampling. He, he's, he's perfect. Like, he is the king at this. Like, I remember when Uptown Funk first came out. Like, the first time I heard it, I was like, this is awesome. And the reason why is because it sounded familiar. It sounded kind of like, you know, 80s you know, 70s type funk, but it was it was a new spin on it. 100%. Kanye, Kanye recently tweeted, and I hate quoting Kanye, but recently tweeted that, you know, great artists steal an update. And that's so true. And music's such a great example of this with all the sampling that goes on and the remixes that go on. It's even interesting when you think about the people who are really great songwriters. Max Martin comes to mind. He's one of the greatest songwriters of all time. He's the third most number one singles after Paul McCartney and John Lennon. And his technique is all about taking elements of the chorus, but introducing them much earlier in the song. So by the time it actually reaches the chorus, it's already catchy. It's already familiar. You're already interested in it. And so over and over again, when you start to see it, you start to realize that creativity is not about novelty. It's not about newness. It's about the blend of the familiar and the new. Right. But going back to that creative curve, 
there's a point where it becomes too familiar and you get sick of it. Like I'm, whenever Uptown Funk comes on now, I'm just like instantly <laughs> change the channel because I don't, it's just, I've heard it so hey, much. Lord. I'm tired of it. Yeah, hundred percent. And this is actually, they've actually done studies with music specifically where they just make people listen to music over and over again. And it follows this U shape. Like we have this very predictable way in which our preferences change. And what's interesting is that that effect happens both at the individual level, the group level, and the population level. Because obviously within a population, people are experiencing things at different times and different rates. But at all three of these levels, the same thing happens. So one of the key jobs for a creator is to understand how familiar and novel something is. So what I did in the book is I interviewed all of the leading academics who study creativity across neuroscience, psychology, anthropology. But I also interviewed 25 living creative geniuses. These are people like Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer of Netflix, billionaires like David Rubenstein, Pasek and Paul, the songwriting duo who did most of the music for La La Land, Dear Evan Hansen, and The Greatest Showman. And what was so interesting from these interviews is that because familiarity is so important, one of the things that these creatives do that seems like unexpected is they actually are some of the biggest consumers of culture, not just creators, but consumers of culture. Because they realize that to know what's going to have the right amount of familiarity, they have to know what their audience has experienced. They have to be out there. They have to be consuming. You know, Ted Sarandos told me the story about how, as a kid, he was the clerk at the local video rental store, and he literally watched every single movie in the store. And like, granted, this was the 80s, so there was less movies, but he watched every single movie in the store. And he says this is a big way in which he developed his taste, because so much of taste, so much of creativity is knowing what's already out there and how what you're creating will relate to past creative products. Well, okay, so this idea of consuming content, right? So you kind of can have this stuff that you can remix, right? And fi- figure out what's familiar, what's novel. Like we all consume, right? We're all like on our smartphones, looking at Reddit or Instagram <laughs> or watching Netflix. So why is it that some people are able to take that stuff they consume and create something new with it? Yeah. So what's interesting is that how these creators consume is different than how probably you or I consume. Like we'll watch a movie and sort of sit back and relax, or we just read a book and we want to suspend disbelief. What's interesting is these great creators, they like, they touch and they feel it and they interact with it and they imitate it. You actually find that imitation is a huge part of the creative process and the consumption process for these creatives. You know, I talk in the book about, I interviewed Andrew Ross Sorkin, who, you know, editor of Dealbook of the New York Times, anchor at Squawk Box, wrote the book Too Big to Fail, co-creator of the show Billions, like someone who knows how to learn, right? He's learned how to learn. And it was so interesting. He told me that when he first wanted to become a journalist, what he did is he would take front page articles from the New York Times business section, and he would literally outline how are they structured? Do they start with a quote? Do they start with a story? Do they start with a supporting detail? And by learning that structure of a great creative work, That's how you actually learn what is that familiar baseline that your audience likes, that they enjoy. You don't have to go recreate the wheel since familiarity is important. And imitation actually allows you to learn how to do that. Ben Franklin writes in his autobiography that he did something literally the same thing as Andrew Ross Sorkin did. You know, we think of Ben Franklin as this amazing writer, but when he was 18, he was actually scolded by his father for being such a terrible writer. And so he was sort of like in a shame spiral And he decided he was going to become a great writer. And to do this, he literally took copies of The Spectator, which was a magazine at the time, and he like went and outlined how they built their arguments. 
And that's how he learned how to write was by imitating the structure of a great successful work. So in the book, I call it the Franklin method. And you see it over and over again with these creators, you know, novelists will go and they'll outline books and see how they're built, how they're structured. And that's how they learn story arcs. Kurt Vonnegut actually did that for his master's thesis. His entire master's thesis was about mapping out the story arcs of great novels. And so imitation is actually one of the keys to creativity. We're going to take a quick break for you, Ward, from our sponsors. All right, if you are an Art of Manliness podcast listener, you like to learn new things. And if you're looking to learn something new, I'd highly recommend checking out The Great Courses Plus. This is the best way to learn new things, better ourselves, and make the most of our time. The Great Courses Plus, you have unlimited access to thousands of lectures across so many different topics with new ones being added all the time. These lectures presented by passionate award-winning experts and professors in their field. They've got everything on philosophy, literature, film, music, how to take better pictures, how to write better, you name it, they've got it. One course I'm listening to right now is called How to Make Stress Work for You. And it's all about how to manage your stress. So you're going to give some great research-backed tactics on how to manage stress. And one of those tactics is actually to inject a bit more stress, good stress in your life to combat the bad stress. So you can find that How to Make Stress Work for You at The Great Courses Plus. Check it out. If you'd like to get a free trial of The Great Courses Plus, you'll have unlimited access to their entire library. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash manliness to start your free trial today will have access to all of their video lectures. Also by Simple Contacts. Simple Contacts is the most convenient way to renew your contact lens prescription and reorder your brand of contacts from anywhere in minutes. To renew your prescription with Simple Contacts, all you need is your current contacts, an internet connection, and 10 feet of space. The doctor's office is now wherever you are. After you take the five-minute Simple Contacts vision test online, it will be reviewed by a licensed doctor and you'll receive a renewed prescription to reorder your contacts. No more appointments, no more waiting rooms, no more overpaying. Simple Contacts has all the brands and types of lenses you're familiar with, so you never have to shop around to find your lenses at the best price. The vision test is only $20 and standard shipping is free. Just to reiterate, this is not a replacement for your periodic full eye health exam. This is just a a test to make sure your prescription's right. So you still need to occasionally to go to your eye doctor, but this is the most convenient way to renew your prescription and reorder your contacts if your vision hasn't changed. I did this vision test super easy to set up. It's really easy. Got my contacts. Fantastic. Saves you time save you money. If you want to try this out at a discount, got an offer for you. To get $20 off your first order of contacts, go to simplecontacts.com slash manliness20 or enter the code manliness20 at checkout. That's simplecontacts.com slash manliness20 or enter manliness20 at checkout for $20 off your first order. And now back to the show. Yeah, no, I, I we've, we we wrote an article a long time ago about copy work, which is basically you, you take someone's thing that, you, that they've written and you just copy it verbatim, either type it out or write it. Like Jack London, the writer, he did this. We like took Robert Louis Stevenson's books and just wrote it. Oh wow. I didn't know that. Uh, awesome. What's the guy? He's another writer. I can't remember the name. Uh, he wrote, I think he wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh, a Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter S. Thompson. He he typed out the Great Gatsby. Just wow. every, he wanted to story. he wanted to know what it felt like to write a great novel. I love that. Yeah. And you see this, it's such a common experience with these great creators that they're not afraid of imitation. And I think a lot of times aspiring creators view that, you know, view the word imitation as this like dirty, dirty word, but like the great artists know that creativity is a social construct. So everything that's come before you is part of how people internalize creativity. So you have to know what's out there and you have to know how it's structured. Right. All right. So consume a lot of content, but it's an active consumption, right? You're, you're, you're fiddling with it. You're yeah. interacting with it, imitating it. You're actually doing something with it. Okay. Besides that, you argue that great creators aren't, aren't just like these lone geniuses. 
they actually are embedded in a deep community of other creatives. So how does that work? I mean, for example, let, let's take, you know, JK Rowling, right? That seemed like it was sort of like a solo thing, but did she have a group of community, like creative community that she was going to, to help her out? Yeah. And this is such a great example. So, you know, we have this notion of these creators as they go to a cabin, they write a book, they hit the end, you know, they're done. But the reality is you can sort of start to think about and you quickly, that quickly, that image quickly falls apart, right? JK Rowling had an agent. She had a publisher. I actually interviewed her first agent, I interviewed her publisher, her first publisher. She had a marketing team. She had all these people and all these people were helping her take her work and actually get it out to the masses, Right. Her first agent had a whole idea around how to build buzz for the book so that it actually would catapult. And there's all these things that went into taking this great product and making it a true creative success. Making it a true creative success. And so, you know, what you see with these great creatives is that there's typically four types of people they have in their creative communities, is what I call it. And so the one that I think is probably most interesting is that of a prominent promoter. And so typically what you see is that since creativity is about having people see you and see that you're creative, you typically have someone, you know, more experienced with a bigger reputation who lends you their reputation if you are younger and starting out. You see this obviously in music with the idea of opening acts for a band. You see some academics with junior researchers whose names are put up on papers, even if they just contributed a small amount. You see this in every industry, this idea of sort of um, passing on down the reputation. And that's incredibly important to the process. Even startups, you have your board of advisors. The other one that's interesting is a master teacher. So you find that these great creatives typically had someone that they learned from who is an expert. There was one study done for this book called Developing Talent in Young People. And they looked at 120 people who are world-class across this wide variety of talents. And what they found was that of the 120, 120 had a teacher who themselves was world-class. So you need someone that you're actually going to learn from to actually learn the sort of the nuances of your creative craft. The third type of person in your creative community is what I call a modern muse. And this is someone who helps inspire you, both through positive emotions, like giving you a pep talk, but also through friendly competition, which you find with these great creators. You know, I interviewed Connor Franta, who's a popular YouTube creator, and he talked to me about how he has all these friends who are YouTube creators. Like a lot of us have friends from college and high school and past experiences, but these really successful creatives tend to surround themselves with other really successful creatives because it motivates them, right? These people understand it. They know that creativity is this up and down battle and they're willing to give you that pep talk and they serve as an example of something you can also achieve. And so I think that's just like one of these really, really critical critical elements. Yeah. I, th- I thought the the section about having a promoter or just being able to promote yourself even to promote a creative idea. Cause like oftentimes we think like, Oh, you know, creative idea will just stand on itself. Like if people, if you create something that's creative, people will just inherently recognize that it's creative, but that's not necessarily the case, right? A hundred percent. And this is why, this is why it's so important if you're in a creative field to be in the epicenter, to be in the cities where that is, right? It's so hard to break into fashion if you're not in New York. Because creativity has this huge human element to it. And, you know, you might think, oh, this is changing with the internet and Skype calls and all this stuff. But still what you find is the people who achieve the biggest success in their creative fields are typically physically there because that's where the people are. That's so important to the creative process. Right. I mean, one example of, you know, failing to promote yourself 
or your creative idea that I like from the book was the theory of evolution. So when we think theory of evolution, we think Charles Darwin, right? But as you pointed out in the book, there was another guy named Alfred Russell Wallace that came up with the idea of, of evolution at the same time that Darwin did. And, you know, Darwin got this letter from him saying, hey, I've come up with this idea. And Darwin's like, oh my gosh, I've been working on <laughs> Origin of the Species and this guy's already got, I mean, what am I going to do? And they kind of did it together, but Darwin got most of the credit for it because he, he put himself out there a little bit more than Wallace. Yeah, and you see this over and over again, this idea of what academics call simultaneous invention, where two people invent something like the light bulb, for example, two people tried to patent it the same year. One is Thomas Edison, who we all know and we talk about. And the other person, I don't even remember the name right now, right? <laughs> because we, in our society, there's this whole other element to creativity around recognition and knowingness. And so, you know, Darwin, after he published his book, went out around, promoted it, talked to all these people about it. Alfred Wallace literally went back out to sea to do more research. He was, you could say in some ways, the, the more of a real scientist in that way, but it was Darwin who promoted it. In fact, when later Alfred Wallace wrote a book about it, at that point, it was so clearly associated with Darwin that he actually, in his book title, called it Darwinism. He literally ceded it to him because it was so obvious that he had lost. And so I think you see this, this really fascinating thing in history where we think we know a lot about creativity and who's created what, um, but really what we know is who sort of won the sort of public opinion battle of creativity, who got their ideas distributed, who actually got the reach and the exposure. And that's such a huge and undervalued part of it. Right. I mean, I think of all the great creatives, like we did a podcast about Da Vinci and Da Vinci was this creative genius. He had this community, right? He consumed tons of content, but he's also, he's, he promoted himself. Like I remember that the way he got his job in one of the the, the King's court that he did, he, he said, I am the greatest inventor. I'll great, create amazing military machines for you. And he, he never did that. <laughs> he hadn't done that yet. But like he, he was willing to put himself out there and kind of puff himself up to get the job. And because of that, we like, we were talking about Da Vinci, like, oh, Da Vinci's like the, the prototypical genius. A hundred percent. I mean, there's this really fascinating study that followed art students from the time they were in school to, I think it was 15 years after they left art school. And what they found was that in art school, the students who did the best in terms of grades and perception by the other students were the ones who most represented the like archetype of an artist. Like they were sort of like dark and a little weird and all this stuff. But 10 years later, the successful artists, actually none of those kids were successful. The successful artists were the ones who were best at salesmanship. They were the best marketers, the best PR people. In fact, they found that these successful artists, they all happened to rent a loft in New York after they graduated. And the idea is that the loft actually represented this sort of extroversion to their work, this ability to invite people over for parties, for people to see their work, to talk about them, for people to come by. You know, they had this very public space in which their art was represented. So even though it seems silly, there's actually this whole, you know, importance to actually having people see you, experiencing you, and you be able to sell yourself. This whole idea of the creative curve, like this, this intersection of familiarity and novelty, an interesting 
I think, insight that comes from this is that timing of your idea can make or break whether it's considered creative or just crazy or stupid. <laughs> totally. I mean, think about if J.K. Rowling had written her book 100 years earlier, or if you know you painted Andy Warhol in 1920s, or if I painted an Andy Warhol-esque painting today, it wouldn't be creative. It would just be sort of something you sell at Ikea, right? And so timing has this huge element. Like Everything is compared to what's come before it. And so if you don't understand that, you're at this huge disadvantage, which is why the consumption is important. Because then you know what's been out there. Right. And you know what people are familiar with. And so you're able to iterate to that new thing that you want to get to eventually, but do it slowly so people are like, okay, that's cool. And one problem that creators run into is that they have to have this deep amount of consumption, but you can sometimes become like a super consumer where your knowledge or your familiarity is slightly different than your audience. So one thing you also find, which is interesting is that these creators are highly iterative and highly feedback-driven. The most successful creators aren't going off into the woods and writing their book and then coming back. The most successful creators are actually listening to their audiences early and often. I found this across food sciences, across novel writing, across movies, is that even if it's sort of a low-tech way of doing it, constantly these creative geniuses are constantly getting feedback because they understand that their job is to triangulate their creative product to be at that right blend of familiarity and novelty. And that is really an audience reaction. So if your job is to get a specific audience reaction, well, you better listen to them. And so that was really surprising to me, was how just how iterative these processes were. Yeah, a great example of a product that was too early for its time was the Apple Newton. Oh, yeah. It was like, it was like a, it was like, like it was basically the smart, it was like the iPhone back in the 90s. But everyone's like, this is dumb. And it was a complete flop. Well, then think about when the iPhone came came about. At that point, it was much more familiar, right? It was basically combining a phone and an iPod. And we'd all had iPods at that point. We understood the form factor. Like this was, this had no longer become this like, it wasn't radically new, right? And so that was much more comfortable. We knew the idea of a PDA. There was the idea of the touchscreen that was out there. And so, yeah, the Newton was just, it was too new. Right. I talk in the book about, I talk in the book about the story of Campus Network, So Campus Network was a social network that started at Columbia University a month before Facebook at Harvard, another Ivy League school. And, um, you know, they started and they had, they went viral at Columbia. But when they went up to compete with Facebook, it was so interesting because Campus Network actually had the more advanced product. Like they had features that Facebook didn't have yet, like the news feed, the activity feed, groups, photos, all these things. But it actually turned out that how simple the original Facebook was, it was basically just a directory with photos and the ability to add friends and stuff. How simple it was was actually important because when people saw Campus Network, they were actually kind of intimidated at that point. Like they were just getting used to the idea of using their real name on the internet. Like this was 2004, 2005. And so now I'm going to like share all my activity to people. It was too early for that. And so you see over and over again, that's not just about is this feature useful? Is this product useful? But is it in the right time and place for people to want to even use it? Right. You have to kind of boil frogs, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Frog doesn't even know it's being boiled. <laughs> when you put it in there, you start up, <laughs> cranking up the heat. Okay. Well, so, okay, let's, let's recap this. So the, cre- so the creativity, it's social. Like there's, it's not just, you can't just come with crazy ideas. That's not creative. Other people have to recognize that it's creative. There's an intersection between familiarity and novelty, 
right? If it's too radically new, like people are just like, that's stupid, that's crazy, they're not going to latch on. So it needs to be a little bit of familiarity. And you can do that, figure out that sweet spot by consuming lots of content, but in an active way, being embedded in a community of other creative types who are going to help promote you or maybe give you feedback or bounce ideas off of. And then you're constantly iterating those ideas from your your the people you're creating for. Yeah. If you follow those steps, you're well on your way to capital C creativity. Doesn't mean it's easy, but you're on your way. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, I can see that taking a lot of work, especially the consumption and being active with it. That I can see that being crazy. Well, I mean, look, we 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 literally scraped the surface. There's so many like case studies that you get into that are really fascinating. Um, where can people go to learn more about the book? Yeah, so it's thecreativecurve.com. Thecreativecurve.com. Well, Alan Gannett, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, man. My guest here is Alan Gannett. He's the author of the book, The Creative Curve. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about the book at thecreativecurve.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash creativecurve, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the podcast, I appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you so much. I appreciate if you'd also share the show with a friend or family member who might get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.